Without a destination in mind, they let the clockwork butterfly drift as it may, visiting towns without direction or intention. They would stop in a place, stay for a week, polling many of the townsfolk about the whereabouts of the castle, then leave again and let the butterfly guide their goings to the next stop. Everywhere they stopped, they were welcome. It seemed no place in all the world was unfamiliar with the fame of the prince who had at once been so generous with coin, and then at another time had been so rich in treasure, and he had brought prosperity to many kingdoms and nations. They were eager to help, friendly and kind, but nobody knew of the castle except in vague rumors and sightings long ago, when the prince himself had searched for it, or earlier still. Soon the prince despaired of news. He had sought the castle before, after all, and had come to no good through asking questions at a venture. He knew of only one soul who might yet have news of the castle, and he dreaded meeting her in person again. Instead, he rested, unable to aid either of his kingdoms, and marveled at the many natural wonders they encountered in their flight. Great canyons of striated stone and waterfalls plummeting over high rocks into deep pools below, deep forests full of magnificent beasts only known in legend, and deserts that stretched endlessly across the horizon with high waves of sand that shifted in the wind like water. They visited bustling port cities, thick with the smell of foreign spices, and castle towns with high walls and splendid armies, and tiny villages teetering on the precipices of high mountains. For the first time, he rested, and he contemplated, thinking of his administrative failures, and how he might bring wealth and happiness to his kingdoms again. But the princess, indifferent to the natural wonders the prince enjoyed, for she had seen greater wonders still from the high windows of her castle as it wandered aimlessly across the land, had come to see a new kind of variety she had never before had the opportunity to appreciate. In her tower, she had always seen and heard people at a distance, detached from their lives in her pleasant castle, watching them only in the few moments as she passed towns and cities and village farms. She had only caught glimpses of their toil and triumph, their loves and losses, families and friendships, hearths and homes. But her forays into the marketplace, asking after her castle, had taught her to listen with a patient tongue to the stories and lives of others. Now she could wander freely through the outlying villages, talking for hours with old housewives and country barbers, children darting through the streets and old souls with dim eyes that had witnessed the scope of many stories from start to finish. Scholars with eyes weak from the fine script of ancient tomes had explained to her whole histories of wars and ages of plenty, benevolent conquerors and tyrannical kings, and she began to love these tales and stories and lies from a new sort of observation close enough now to see the scars of old skirmishes and hear voices strained to remember loved ones now gone, but still distant enough to see both beginning and end at a single glance. Soon her heart stirred with a new longing, not for her castle, but for a story to call her own. She no longer wished to be an observer, disconnected from the lives of the people in the world, much though she loved the view it afforded her. She wanted to act, and be the sort of person tales were told about. She wanted to merit the love her people had given to her in the city where she had been born, not because of some long-forgotten lineage that did not matter to her, or the hope they had cultivated of their own accord, but because she had enriched them somehow, had brought joy to their lives where once there was none. And so, in each new town where they stopped, she took a sum of money from the prince and decreed a person in town to go and learn to read and write, and she instructed them to keep two books. In the first, they were to write all that they knew and remembered of their life in the past, and to record all the memories and dreams, joys and fears they had as a child until the present day. In the other, they were to record the stories of all they encountered in their travels after they had acquired their learning, as they went from town to town, eventually to report to whichever capital they were closest to, 
the city in the east, where she had been welcomed and the vault had been opened to them, or the city in the west, where she had feasted each night with the prince and benefited from the plenty of the old king's miserliness. And, she instructed, if they heard any rumor of the wandering castle, they were to note it especially in the book, and report it to any other watcher, for this was the name of the cast she so created, Watcher, that with the strength of many watchers her castle might yet be found. This project surprised and encouraged the prince, who had grown so accustomed to his own lonely traveling that it had not occurred to him to organize the subjects of the two cities to work toward this goal in concert. Nor had he appreciated the intelligence and resourcefulness of the princess, who he had always considered no more than a treasure in a tower, to be protected and comforted and pleased, but never as someone who might shape the goings of the world in her own right. Hope blossomed anew in his heart that she might one day be happy, that the castle might one day be found, and that she might yet love him as he loved her. And again his love for her matured, seeing no longer her beauty and her happiness, but admiring her for her ingenuity and strength of mind and character. Indeed, as he watched her organizing the people in each town they came to see, he concocted, inspired by her own ingenuity, a plan to relieve the financial problems of both the cities he now called home. He only had to make commerce between them. Since the one had great riches in coin and the other had great riches in treasure, he might yet have built some sort of stability between the two. Where the prince had played the buyer in his own hometown, with the same fervor did he sell all the riches of his second home. And just as the citizens of his old home were energized by his coming and stagnated in his absence, so did the citizens of the new stagnated in his presence but become energized in their absence. If only his old home still had its wealth, he might travel between the two, waxing the one as the other waned, buying in one place as he sold in the other, that both might prosper and rest in good measure as he moved between them. For it seemed that neither could be happy and well so long as they remained there, but only by moving between the two could they both know real joy. Indeed, he even considered that this mobility between the two cities might make his princess happy, for then she would know change even in routine, and perhaps would know the joy she'd once known in her moving castle. He knew the day was soon to come when she would want to return to one or the other castle in the hopes of hearing the reports of the wanderers she had trained, and in that day he hoped that both cities would have prospered enough in his absence to begin his project. It would only be a matter of time. But alas, this was not to be. For by ill chance the wind directed the glittering butterfly into a small and dank hamlet, in poor repair and stinking of offal left in the roadside by the indifferent townsfolk there. And though neither cared to stay long in that place, the princess determined to charge one of these people with the task of watcher, as she had in every town up to that point. But as they went from house to house and shop to shop, she could only find people sick and weak with age, men and women bent and broken by years. Even the armorer and the builders were old and hunched, and they strained at their labors with brittle bones. They knew nothing of the castle, it seemed, but in their mouths was a more terrible rumor, which the prince expected even as he began to recognize the town. They spoke of a woman, not hunched and bent with age, who, but who smelled of decay even more strongly than the townsfolk, who did not reside in a shambled hut, but who dwelt in the finest mansion on the outskirts of town, a witch who practiced a potent craft and communed with the spirit world. She, they told her, would no doubt know where the castle would be, even if she demanded a high price for the knowledge. The princess, thrilled by the prospect, wanted to go and see her at once, but the prince knew of whom the townsfolk spoke, and realized that his time had finally arrived, even when it seemed he might yet avoid it. 
for though he counseled the princess against this course of action, she would not be swayed by his words, and he knew that she would steal away that very night if he would not oblige her, that she had grown every bit as strong and willful as he had been when he, too, had searched for the castle. If anything, he loved her all the more for it. So that night, as she prepared for bed, the prince summoned her, and they spoke together at long length in privacy. He asked about her ventures out of the palace and their time in each city, about the people she had met and what she learned of each, and he found her to be sagely and patient and kind and far more interested in the lives of each subject than he himself had been, though he had claimed to care for them in his rulership. He had treated them as he had treated everyone in his travels, as tools or goals or obstacles to be used or taken or overcome. In his single-minded sense of purpose, he had ignored so much of the world that she, even experienced as she had been, had loved and learned and admired. He recognized in her the diplomat and cunning politician that he failed to be among the watchmakers in the city of the rising sun. He knew she could single-handedly resolve the troubles of each town in which they had lived, had she only been given the opportunity. For all the effort he had expended to make her happy, it seemed that he was quite incompetent for the task. Even now, it seemed that the beauty he had once loved in her was lost. Her once pale, porcelain face had been lined by care and ruddied with travel. Her once noble height had been bowed by consideration and sadness. But she seemed to move even more freely now, as if no longer afraid of striking walls in her gestures, and she no longer hesitated to ask questions, but readily pestered everyone she met with disarming curiosity. Her cheeks glowed when her fancy was struck, either by his own kindness or by the body reminiscences of a stranger, or by children asking impertinent questions in the street. She smiled now, broader than her face would admit, it seemed, unseemly in court, but so earnest and warm that his love for her flared in its light. Her beauty had ceased to be a kept thing, a prize to treasure and cherish, and had become a live quality, enriching her and enriched by her, utterly apart from him and even more desirable in its independence. She did not need him, and every effort he had taken to keep her had been transformed by her character into a treasure more hers than his. At last he asked her if she still yearned for her castle, and she, fired with the expectation that the knowledge of how to reach it was within her grasp, told him that her heart still yearned to reside in the halls echoing with each heavy step, with the splendor of motion and youth, and that she would never be truly happy without it. And he nodded, sadly, and turned over to her the last treasure he had kept against her, a key, found in the deep recesses of the palace vault after it had been opened. It was made of gold, and set with a dozen tiny precious gems to match those set in the great clock face, which could be used to start or stop the enchanted mechanism in the great castle. He told her, too, of the rod that had once lain beside it, the tool of her parents, set with the remaining lodestone among the three that had once been entrusted to her family, which he had cast into the sea at a featureless shore far away. He told her that he had inquired about the castle at the vault, and that this was all there was. The lodestone he bore, the master lodestone she carried, the lost rod, and the key, which he gave to her, so that she could start and stop the castle as she saw fit, once she had reached it again. Then he told her about his own travels, and how he had sold his youth to the witch who came each night as he slept, who had reduced this town to a squalid slum of miserable dying people, and who had doubtless ensnared many more in her lust for immortality and youth. He told her that this was the witch the people in the town spoke of, and that she was not to be trusted, for she was wicked and devious, and would turn the desires of anyone to her own purposes and gain. 
and the princess was confused, for it seemed to her that he had at one and the same time assured her that she would find her castle, even as he told her that the one way she had found to reach it was closed to her. And he nodded, and asked that they speak of other things, and the princess agreed, for she was still timid of the prince and had never gainsaid his will, even in her unhappiness. They spoke long into the night about all sorts of other matters, happy and sad, of the great renovations undertaken while they lived in his kingdom, and the sadness of their insolvency, of the splendid wealth in the palace vault, and of the people's laziness once they had arrived, of the magnificent clockwork butterfly and its amazing power of flight, and of the lost castle wandering empty over the face of the earth. They spoke of their parents, of his father's grief and her father's protectiveness, and how each had loved too much and protected too dearly. But, the prince concluded, he understood their plight, for he too knew what it felt like to desire another's happiness to the point of distraction and madness, and she thought to tell him that she knew he loved her, but she did not. And as the first strands of dawn rose over the horizon, she shrieked for a third person, a woman with dark hair and gray eyes, pale, pure skin, and a reek of death, had appeared among them. And at the shriek, the prince promptly awoke to see the witch, and the pact was broken a third time, while a new pact raveled around them all. With a careless gesture, the witch cast an enchantment of sleep upon the princess and addressed the prince. "'You have tried to trick me a third time,' she said cruelly. "'I told you what would happen if you did.' "'You could have prevented it if you wanted,' the prince retorted. "'You could have put her to sleep before you arrived.' "'I could have,' agreed the witch. "'Well, we both know your cunning would find another way.' "'My cunning?' asked the prince. "'What would you have done if we had ever been married?' "'Did that occur to you when first you made the bargain?' asked the witch. "'It is not my fault that your arrangement was foolishly made.' The prince looked tired and old, but he persevered in his argument. You wanted to break the pact. You know I have a last boon to ask, and you want me for your own. I do, the hag admitted wickedly, showing teeth of unlikely perfection. So ask, and we shall both have what we want. I want you to send the princess to her castle, as she is, with her key and her dress and all. In return, you may have me placed in an eternal sleep and come to me as you will, when you will. Agreed. No tricks. She is to be safe and happy, as she was before I found her. Safe, yes. Happiness is her own business. Agreed. And you will not trouble her or hurt her in any way. Yes, yes, so long as our pact is binding, she shall be safe and sound. I will not do a thing to your precious princess, save put her safely in her tower, just as if she had always been there. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Agreed. And so they forged their new pact. The princess in her sleep was whisked off by sorcery to her castle and delicately set in her bedchambers in the high tower, while the prince was plunged into a deep and abiding sleep that could not be broken or upset. But the witch, too, unbeknownst to either, used her new power over the prince to rule in both the towns where he had established himself, and she was a cruel tyrant, greedy of wealth and power, and wrought great evil in her lust for finery and youth. In secrecy she had the old king, the prince's father, slain, and hoarded his money to herself. And she took for her home the splendid palace and its many-chambered vault, surrounding herself with the treasures of craft and fine jewels, even as they spoiled and stained, rust and cracked beneath her gaze, as though even the years of youth captured in artistry within were unsafe before her. 
and under her rule it seemed that all toiled into early old age while she hoarded new riches, stolen or sacked or contracted by force, to distract herself from her own wickedness, which threatened in each moment to stain her wretched beauty and misappropriated youth. And with each year she fought away, the few remaining to her became harder and more loathsome to her, and more difficult to exorcise. And every day she tightened her grip over her kingdoms, building an army to wrest the other nations into her grasp, willing all the world to winter, that she might preserve her spring. And the prince slept on, unknowing. <laughs>